Okay, so the last couple of weeks we've looked at cultural Marxism and how it's influenced our secular society. Last week we looked at critical social justice or critical race theory, and again looked at the, the, the false gospel that is in it. It is a false religion. We looked at that. We looked at the biblical definition of justice. Tonight we are looking at cancel culture. And it's a little more serious than maybe we thought 10 years ago. It's starting to become very serious, and I think we're uh, at an alarming rate, and we're starting to clue into that. I know I am to some degree, and we're all scared of it. We are, so we're going to try and tackle that tonight uh, as best we can. Oh, uh, one other thing. Tonight we're not going to take a break halfway through, So, and water is welcome in with you. You can bring water in with you, but please leave coffee outside the worship center or any other kind of beverage. Okay. But there's still something nagging me that I was supposed to tell you, but whatever it is, it is what it is. Okay, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. So Lord, thank you again for bringing us together tonight. We're thankful for your word that speaks into every generation speaks into every time period, speaks into every situation. Lord, there is not a situation in our lives right now that you have not provided an answer for. And Lord, we just ask that tonight you will guide us again through this study at this time. Help us to gain understanding of our culture, what's behind it, the spiritual forces that are at work, and how we as Christians, as your soldiers, fellow soldiers, together, are to combat and confront the enemy. So Lord, give us help tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've been looking at, and for some reason I keep coming back to Ephesians 6, 10. Uh, these verses just keep coming up over and over again. Maybe you need to study them. Um, they are front and center to everything we're trying to do in these 10 weeks. But I want you to notice a new emphasis tonight. So the first week we looked at this and looked at the aspect of what it means to be a soldier in God's army, to be dropped behind enemy lines, to be surrounded by a culture that does not see the world the way that we do. Last week we looked at the emphasis of the schemes of the devil. What is he up to? Distorting the truth. What happens to truth? I know what it was. I was going to say, if you missed anything from last week or the week before, it is online. <laughs> the recordings will be out either tomorrow or the next day. You can thank Pastor Jay Pickering at the back for that. He is putting a lot of hard work in behind the scenes to get those to you. Also, I discovered maybe last week or over the weekend, that it is on podcast as well. Some of you probably know that already, but if you have Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast deliverer is, if you just look up 242 Church, you will find the podcast of these sessions as well. So there are some other options. Thankfully, we can move on. That's not in the back of my mind now. Isn't that great? The schemes of the devil and what happens to truth but tonight, we're going even further, and notice there are, there, there's an emphasis in these verses, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand. 
And the idea of standing isn't just I'm standing on my own two feet. Isn't that wonderful? I can stand. You know, as a child, I couldn't stand, and then I could stand. It's not talking about that. We know that. We're talking about soldiers. We're not talking about soldiers just standing. We're talking about soldiers taking a stand, right? They're taking a stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against, notice again, we're standing against, and it's being repeated over and over again, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, The whole point of that last statement, that last verse, was to try and get into our minds just how big the enemy is that we're standing against. In other words, he's bigger than you, right? He's bigger than me. We're standing against cosmic powers, spiritual forces in heavenly places that are doing things we just have a little bit of a glimpse of, but very little. We just have a faint understanding of what they're up to. But it's massive. That's what Paul's saying. So therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God. Don't hesitate. Don't put this off. Don't think this is something you do when you're an adult. No, this is something you do now. No matter what age you're at, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, there it is again, in the evil day and having done all to stand, there it is again, firm, Stand, therefore. Do you see the emphasis over and over again? It seems like the text is giving us the impression that someone may be trying to knock us off our feet or to retreat. And over time, the devil increases his aggression, doesn't he? So it might start with distortion of truth, We hear lies, we're not sure they're lies, and eventually the truth is totally replaced with a lie, and the lie is dressed up to be more attractive than the truth. All of that was last week. But then eventually he begins to move into the arena of threats and outright aggression and violence. And we are starting to see it, aren't we? Not just locally, not just nationally, we are looking at it on a global scale right now. It's everywhere. It's around us. It's everywhere. But we shouldn't be surprised. I don't know why we, well, maybe I do know why we're surprised, because we've been living without it for so long. But we shouldn't be surprised if we're looking at the world from a biblical perspective. It's the way it was supposed to be from the beginning, and we'll look at that. But First Peter 5, Peter reminds the Christians that he was writing to, to be sober-minded, be sober-minded, be watchful, always on the lookout, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A roaring lion. Now he's not the cunning serpent in the garden. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering, again, see all the emphasis on suffering, resist, firm, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right. 
So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Well, we're going to start with just a little glimpse. We're going to kind of put our finger on the pulse of the culture and what's going on right now and where the reality is of this around us. So we're going to look at the intolerance of tolerance in our society, a society that claims to be tolerant, but is very intolerant, if you'll notice. And by the way, the whole concept of tolerance means that you have to have someone you disagree with or you don't see eye to eye with or someone that you have to tolerate, right? See, if I see eye to eye with you on everything and we just get along and have a great time all the time and you know we're spending time in the coffee shops together, we're just having fun, fun, fun all the time. I don't have to tolerate you. Right? I don't have to be tolerant towards you. Maybe we're best buds and... There's no friction between us. Then I don't have to tolerate you. Tolerance implies a disagreement of some kind or a difference of some kind, doesn't it? But we don't think that way in, in society now. Tolerance means something completely different. We're back to shifting our terms like we noticed last week. So, first of all, in our books. Well, Jean and Laurent de Brunhoff, I've just probably massacred that name, and their book series, Baber the Elephant, canceled. Oh, these were good. I grew up with these, H.A. Ray's Curious George. Canceled, right? You say, why? Uh, white man, yellow hat, going to Africa, getting a monkey, bringing it back. As a child, I didn't see anything other than the storyline in that. I, that's all it was. It was Curious George. It was all about Curious George. He's so curious, you know, he's, he's, he's cute and he gets into trouble and then he gets out of trouble somehow. And, you know, the whole conflict resolution and all that. And I don't know, I grew up on those books, but no longer can we have those books. They are deemed racist and therefore must be canceled. Dr. Seuss. Yes, apparently, Dr. Seuss, the good old liberal from the 60s, was it, is now not so good of a liberal. He must be canceled uh, because of uh, pictures in his books that are now deemed racist, which he would never have intended in the first place. Amazon, who own now 80% of the book industry, book uh, distribution industry, canceled a book by the name of When Harry Became Sally, by Ryan T. Anderson. If you can get your hands on this book, do so before you can't. Uh, it's a book, I, he, I don't believe he's a believer, but he wrote this thoughtful book um, to provide answers and scientific answers to questions arising from the growing, exploding transgender movement of our culture right now. And it was a book try, trying to explain what's going on with gender dysphoria and so on, what's being celebrated right now. He is saying it, it, there's a lot of damaging effects to how culture is responding to this and celebrating it and causing all kinds of biological damage that is going to cause havoc down the road. Well, Amazon decided that book can't be on the shelves, and so they've taken it completely off, and it is hard, difficult to find now. And by the way, the Berenstein Bears are going to be next. They're very, very close on the heels of all of this. There's one, one of uh, 
Jan and Stan Berenstain's books is called He Bear, She Bear. Listen to this awful kind of uh, language that they give, this indoctrination to children. I'm a father. I'm a he. A father's something you could be. I'm a mother. I'm a she. A mother's something you could be. How tragic that we have such kind of language poisoning our children. So therefore, it won't be long before that book, I'm being sarcastic, folks, that book is going to be canceled as well. Well, next we have our movies and our media. Yes, Hollywood is eating itself alive right now, canceling itself. You could never be woke enough. So classic Disney movies have been taken off of Disney+. Plus. I believe you can check this out for yourself. I don't have Disney Plus right now, um, so you can check this out if you do. But Peter Pan, Dumbo, Aristocats, pardon me, Aristocats, Lady and the Tramp, The Jungle Book, Swiss Family Robinson have all been canceled from Disney. No longer can you find these. These are some of our kids' favorite movies. Um, and you're probably scratching your head. What could be wrong with these movies? No time to explain. We must move on. Last Man Standing, Tim Allen, uh, canceled, uh, I think, more than once as uh, he tried to keep that show on the air. Paw Patrol, not sure if it's been completely canceled yet, but it is on the way. You say, what could be wrong with it? Well, it is considered pro-police. Danger to society, folks. We can't have that. The 1939 classic, Gone with the Wind, among others. I never saw it, so I can't judge for myself. Uh, but Hollywood, yes, is eating itself. Which is what cancel culture would, will do. It will run out of victims, and soon enough, it will start canceling itself. And that's what we find. Next, we have toys. Yes, Mr. Potato Head must go because the gender of a potato is a threat to our children. I don't know if you knew that. Um, so uh, that, that, I, I'll leave that one where it's at. We'll keep moving here. History must be canceled. Did you know that? We have to stop ignoring what's happened in the past. We have to topple statues. So think of the statues, the figures that have been toppled in the last year and a half. Christopher Columbus, George Washington, Robert E. Lee, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Queen Elizabeth. Yes, the Queen apparently needs to be canceled. Queen Victoria, Sir John A. Macdonald. All of these must be canceled. We must erase history because guess what, folks? It's a secret. Don't let this out. All of these people were sinners. They weren't perfect. And they did things that may have been wrong. And I would suggest that if you're going to topple their statues, you better be prepared for people to topple ours. Because down the road, people are going to find blind spots in our own history, in our generation. And they're going to recognize the sins that we have committed as a particular culture. Be careful before you stand in judgment over others who may not have the truth that we have today. I'm not calling everything that they are thinking truth, by the way. All I'm saying is it's wonderful to look back on things with 2020 vision. Horribly unfair to those who are living in that time period. Toppling and erasing history is a very bad idea. 
We were actually talking about Christopher Columbus at lunch today. Whether or not he was a bad guy or a good guy or whether it matters because of what he did in the end and what he accomplished and so on, but we're not here to get into that. History is being canceled. Businesses and ministries are being canceled. So Chick-fil-A, due to an interview that Dan Cathy once had with a magazine in which he gave his view of sexuality within the, the definition of biblical marriage between one man and one woman for life. Chick-fil-A has been kicked out of the UK because of its stance for biblical marriage. The attempts have been made in areas of like California, Chicago, a good old country called Canada, like Toronto, and even Windsor. I can't wait for it to get here, but it is what it is. Attempts are being made all over the place to stop these people from selling fried chicken because fried chicken is very dangerous to society. Focus on the family had their Twitter account suspended uh, for stating the biological sex of Joe Biden's transgendered health official, Dr. Levine, for stating the sex of this individual for what it is biologically, Twitter said, focus on the family, is deemed unworthy of having a platform on our platform, and they were canceled. Many bakeries, I think most of us have heard the bakery stories, Daniel and Amy MacArthur in Belfast, Ireland, refused to bake a cake with support gay marriage, a message uh, on the cake, and they were accused of discrimination, and I think right now they might even be fighting it in court. Locally, Tea Bear's Creamery, most of you have heard this story, were considered hateful, and of course, hate cannot have a home here, because they refused to make a cake featuring a dra drag queen because they disagreed. They had a brick thrown through their window. That wasn't covered by the media. I don't remember seeing that in the media, but that wasn't considered hate. I think that might have been considered social justice. It's everywhere. People. Yes, people. Don Cherry said two words. You people. Canceled. You wouldn't apologize he never ex explained what he meant by you people. He was saying, you people, respect the poppy and remember the sacrifices of our Canadian soldiers who gave everything for our freedom. He feels pretty strongly about that, and he should. But he can no longer have a platform. It's interesting that Ron McLean, who did back down and apologize, has again been in trouble and possibly canceled for something else he said. Because you can't be woke enough. J.K. Rowling, who is a classic liberal, she is certainly no conservative and certainly no Christian, but for the very fact that she mocked the transgender movement for refusing to call women women, but rather to call them people who menstruate, and she put on Twitter, I think there's a name for that. Wombit. And she started going through all these 
just mocking it, like I'm pretty sure we have a word for this. I'm not quite sure why none of us can say it. Oh, J.K. Rowling must be canceled for being anti-trans. Donald Trump kicked off Twitter for inciting riots, even though they couldn't find proof or evidence that he incited riots. And of course, just as recently as October 6, what was this, last week? Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the National Security Division is looking into, quote, harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school board members, teachers, and workers in our nation's public schools. Those poor public teachers. Do you know what the alleged terrorists were guilty of having done? They were guilty of having been concerned that their children were being fed pornography and Marxist propaganda and were being forced to wear masks in the classrooms and were upset about it. How dare they? So therefore, there must be a national investigation into this, these acts of domestic terrorism because we must shut these parents up. They have no right to decide the education of their children. Gina Carano, the Mandalorian character, pardon me to all of you who are fans of Star Wars. I'm not. I don't mind them. I just never follow them. Sorry. Uh, Fired from Disney due to a tweet suggesting that hating someone based on their political views looked a lot like the German citizens who hated Jews for just being Jews. Well, we can't have opinions like that. You're not entitled to your opinion. John Robson from National Post wrote in response to Dr. Seuss being canceled, a little poem in honor of Dr. Seuss. And in it, Here are a couple stanzas of what he had to say. There is nothing, no nothing they find in the past that they won't burn to ash with a self-righteous blast. When they're done with their work, then a wasteland you'll see. Not a book will be standing and not a movie. There are some who once thought they could gain from PC... It will strike down my foes, but it won't target me. Sadly, now it is clear that its rage knows no bounds, and upon its old friends it will set its hellhounds. Well, where is this coming from? We look around at culture and ask, what has happened? Why are we all living in fear that the next thing out of my mouth in the workplace might have me called into the... HR department and being reprimanded for having said the wrong thing or the wrong word. Where is it coming from? Is it just that we are a hypersensitive society that cannot handle anything that offends us anymore? Possibly, but it's deeper than that. It is more menacing than that. And we need to be aware of exactly what is happening There's something terribly evil going on. And then we need to look at how to respond to it. Tonight, I don't want this to be simply discouraging. This is not going to be simply discouraging. I hope that we leave here tonight greatly encouraged because this movement, no matter what they do, is not going to win. 
And we're going to notice that and we're going to back that up. We're going to follow through some history, biblical history, post-biblical history, and so on. And then we're going to get into how we respond here and now. But first of all, we need to see what's behind it. Well, here we are. We were introduced to this man a couple of weeks ago. Herbert Marcuse was one of what we know as the Frankfurt School group of cultural Marxist scholars. Uh, He was one of the leading men. He ended up in the United States during World War II. He was run out of Germany by Hitler and fascism, so he hated fascism. Well, that's good. That's good. But he also hated Western society, which was built on Judeo-Christian and biblical principles produced from Puritan thinking. Well, that's bad, right? The Puritans were a group of Christians We're going to notice some of them tonight back in about the 17th century before that, 16th, 17th century, um, that put their theology into every aspect of life. And they are really the thinkers that are the underpinning of our society today in the West and how we, how, how the United States, how Canada is built and, and it still defines our justice system even at this time. Marcuse hated this system. He hated Western civilization, and he wanted to put it all under the fascist title. So he wrote uh, an, an essay that became part of a book in 1965, and then the second edition was produced in 1969. The book was called A Critique of Pure Tolerance. And in that book, he has a section in which the title of his essay is Repressive Tolerance. And he does a little sleight of hand in this essay that is the underpinning of the politically correct movement that has been ongoing for years and years and years that has turned into what we know now as cancel culture, which is a far more vicious, vicious approach to this. It's been around for a long time. What was his approach? Now, this is where any kind of thinking in our minds that says, you know what, I am going to now tell my Uh, woke friends what tolerance means. If I can just redefine for them the mentality behind tolerance, then maybe they'll understand and they'll get where I'm coming from. It doesn't work that way. Because the way he argues this, he is blatantly saying, I don't care because repressive tolerance says that I don't need to be tolerant to you if you have any kind of Christian views or views that are based on Christianity or Uh, biblical thinking at all. I don't have to be tolerant to you at all. My entire job is to shut you up. That's my entire job. How did he get there? Well, what he said and his notion was, began with Western society is inherently corrupted and oppressive. Here we go with the hegemony that we were talking about from the very first week. It's coming up again. Hegemony, the systems of dominance that are put right into our Western society that give power to the oppressor against the oppressed. That's how they view their world. He says these things are in our thinking and we don't even know it. So what we call objective truth or getting to truth objectively, you can't in this society because underpinning the whole thing is a way of thinking that is defined by this hegemony, this system of dominance. So open dialogue on issues 
that we would consider to be a level playing field. You say what you think, I say what I think, we may differ, but eventually, hopefully, we can come to some kind of agreement or we can get to the truth at some point. Marcuse said that's impossible. It's not going to happen because in his view, it is not a level playing field. So when we look at what's going on right now with the cancel culture, we see them tilting the tables, right? When we see Amazon canceling books that they don't agree with, we say, hey, you're, you're tilting the field in your favor. You're not allowing us to express the, the science behind what we're saying, what we're trying to say, and the logic behind what we're trying to say. You're not allowing that anymore. You're not allowing our children to hear right and wrong, good versus evil, and, and what we believe is moral based on biblical principles. You're not allowing that. You've tilted the field. Marcuse says, no, that's not true because the field was already tilted the other way. You see, that's the point he's trying to make. It's slanted by cultural assumptions and presuppositions that were already there. We don't even know it, and we can't see it. Therefore, we don't know it. It's kind of, it's Gnosticism. Just like we noticed last week with critical social justice, it's a form of ethnic Gnosticism where, depending on your color of skin, you can't possibly know what's true. You can't possibly know. You have to know simply by experience. So therefore, there are people who know and there are people who cannot know. That's Gnosticism. That, that's as old as the Bible. It's been going around a long time where people were trying to say, well, there are some people that just have this special knowledge that other people don't have. Marcuse is saying, I've got this special knowledge that other people don't have. And because of it, I know that culture is slanted in the direction of Christian values and Christianity. Therefore, morality is based on Christian values. Sexuality is based on Christian values. Marriage in the family, based on Christian values. It's there. So for example, to criticize the police, to criticize the police makes, in his view, citizens in Western society very angry and upset because in Western society, there's a presupposition already there that law and order is a good thing. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a slanted field. We have to upright that, right? So the only way you get back in this oppression narrative, it's a sleight of hand. Because what he's doing is he's taking a field like this and he's tilting it in his favor while saying that it was already tilted the other way, so therefore when he tilts it, he's actually making it level. He's not. But the only way to get there is to keep this oppression narrative going. You have to keep it going, that there are certain groups of people in society that are oppressed all the time, even though they have all the power. They have the power to keep uh, marketers and corporations from doing certain things. They have the power to tell the media what to say and what to do. They have all the power, but they're still saying we're oppressed. Can you see how this works? But you have to keep that oppression narrative going. It justifies the need for reversing that oppression by repressive tolerance. So therefore, this is what Marcuse said. In the middle of everything else, he says, liberating tolerance. That's what he called it. It's a liberating tolerance. Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right. 
We're not just talking political right. We are talking about Christian biblical values. It would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. The whole post-fascist period, by fascist he doesn't mean Hitler, he means all cisgender, male, white, oppressive individuals, and so on. You go down the list of the oppression narrative, you have it. The whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger. So everything since World War II. Consequently, true pacification requires the withdrawal of tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. True pacification requires the withdrawal of tolerance before the deed. Such extreme suspension of the right of free speech and free assembly is indeed justified only if the whole of society is in extreme danger. I maintain that our society is in such an emergency situation and that it has become the normal state of affairs. Different opinions and philosophies can no longer compete peacefully for adherence and persuasion on rational grounds. The marketplace of ideas is organized and delimited by those who determine the national and individual interests. So that's why there's a member of parliament in Finland by the name of Paivi Rasanen, who's being investigated for hate speech for having questioned her church's endorsement of the LGBT pride community by tweeting a picture of Bible verses that say such activity is sin. That's why the Canadian bill C6 that would amend the criminal code to prohibit certain activities that relate to conversion therapy only works in one direction, folks. If your child deems that they want to be converted to the other gender, it is very quickly, there are already stories and cases of this, it is very quickly that parents are losing the power to say no. That would be harmful for my child and I am seeking my child's own best interest. But if you dare try to convert them the other way and keep them according to their biological sex, This bill in the Canadian, right now, that has been considered, I don't know where it's at right now, what the status of it is, what is behind it is this repressive tolerance. They're trying to, what they would say, level the playing field from that biblical Christian underpinning of Western society. In other words, you can convert them one way, but you can't convert them the other. And if you do, you will be deemed a criminal a lawbreaker. Bill C-36 is another one. That if the person even fears on reasonable ground that the other person will commit an offense motivated by bias, prejudice, or hate based on race, national or ethnic origin, language, color, religion, sex, age, mental or physical disability, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, or any other similar factor. If a person even fears that a crime might be committed, it will be considered a crime according to Bill 36. That's some scary language, folks. 
Well, we are completely against offenses motivated by bias, prejudice, and so on as believers who want to see all people brought to a knowledge of the truth. And we want to seek them in the love of Christ. Pretty soon, the ideas of tolerance, the ideas of prejudice, the ideas that if I disagree with you, that is a hate crime. And now I fear for my life. You can be brought into court for that. That's where we're at. And where did it start? It started in the 60s with a guy named Herbert Marcuse, who ended up in Hollywood, influenced Hollywood. And out of that, listen, we are the first nations in all of history. United States, just think about this. They will bring actors, Hollywood actors, that have this much education on any subject other than they've been on the big screen. They will bring actors into these hearings on Capitol Hill to give some kind of viewpoint of a certain issue that's going on in culture, and we give them some kind of credibility that they know anything. We are the first people in all of history to be defined by our entertainment system. And Herbert Marcuse knew that, and he influenced it right from the very roots, and here we are today. So what are we going to do? We are going to take a historical survey of cancel culture. Why are we going to do this? Well, we need to remind ourselves today, and we are probably going to move through this somewhat quickly, but here's what we want to get out of this. There's good news. God resurrects the canceled. Okay? They're not, they're not going to win. They're, they're not going to prevail because through all of this, and we're going to get into it, we want to notice that cancel culture is not just about us. Oh, they can cancel us. That's fine. But we're going to be searching our hearts tonight to see what we fear more. Do we fear more that we'll be canceled? Fired from our jobs? Excommunicated from our groups of whatever kind? Social clubs? Or are we concerned more that God and his word are being canceled. Because how we define that as we go through this is going to determine how we face the cancel culture around us. So first of all, we're going to look at biblical history. The Bible is, in essence, a book of history. It is redemptive history. That's what we call it, right? God reveals himself to us, his creatures, through history. And scripture is a witness to that redemptive history, how God is working in and through history and through the stories of human beings as he reveals himself to them and then ultimately through Jesus to all of us, mankind. He is revealing himself through history. So scripture is ultimately a book of history. And there are many examples, many that I've thought of and tried to figure out which ones to highlight, which ones to leave on the shelf. But there are many examples of God's resurrection out of historical cancel cultures uh, that we have, uh, that we, we, can, we can look at and gain some lessons from. And if society is going to dismantle Western culture built on Christian principles, what do you think needs to be canceled first? The only way that's going to happen, it's not going to be through canceling Christians. It's going to be through canceling the Bible. 
which is, it's interesting. They're dancing around it, but they're, they're getting closer and closer and closer. And of course, some people are trying to divert and make biblical cases for uh, certain sexual practices. They're trying to say that it's in the Bible and that the Bible promotes it and so on. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And you could try and cancel the Bible, but we're going to notice that you can't. If you could, it would have been canceled long ago. So the first one, the first individual to ever be canceled is Abel. Hebrews tells us that he offered a more excellent sacrifice than his brother Cain. Cain hated his brother's righteous witness and ultimately canceled him by killing him, or so he thought. But as uh, the Lord comes and says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. He's gone. Problem solved. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen to these words. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, that's interesting because what that reminds us of is not only did the blood of martyrs not stay silent, history repeats their voices. We're going to notice that as we go through but listen, God is watching everything and judgment is coming. Maybe you sense right now a little bit of despair like I've struggled with when you see the injustices going on in the world and the way good people are being canceled for speaking truth. And you say, is nobody going to hold these people accountable? Guess what? God is watching it all. And just like Abel's blood was crying out to the ground for justice, God sees all the injustice in our world today. And he sees every individual speaking truth who is being canceled, being shut down, being martyred for the faith. And yes, many Christians today are being martyred in our world at this time for the faith in other areas of the world. But God is watching. He is the judge of all the earth that they will never cancel. Next, I want to notice David very briefly and just to give a couple lessons from David. Not only did David have his kingship restored, but Satan tried to cancel David in two different ways. The first way was through aggression. He tried to cancel him through Goliath. So 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king. 1 Samuel 17, David is in the valley with a massive giant, a giant that he is no match for. And this giant is calling out all sorts of incense, insults pardon me, against Yahweh. And David comes down and says, listen, this fight isn't mine, it's God's. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to beat you today. God is. And uh, that's ultimately what happened. But through aggression... Satan tried to cancel David from being king. Not only David from being king, but David being the line towards the Messiah, right? What happened to David wasn't just about David, it was about Christ. We need to remember that. But secondly, he tried to cancel him with seduction, right? Or temptation. This is very important because through Bathsheba, Satan tried to cancel David. So it's very important, very serious to see that how many prominent Christian leaders and figures have been canceled or just conservatives in general, they might not be Christians, have been canceled due to moral failure. And yet God is a God of restoration. He's a God of resurrection. Just read Psalm 32, read Psalm 51, read the rest of David's story and you can see that. Next, I wanted to bring up Jeremiah very quickly. 
I could talk about Daniel and his friends and so on. We're not going to do that. But Jeremiah is an interesting one. He was up against King Jehoiakim, who was the son of Josiah. King Josiah was the king that was famous for having found the book of the law in the palace and seemed completely clueless as to what it said until he read it and he trembled and he repented. And there was a great spiritual revival that came from King Josiah. His son, King Jehoiakim, was not so vertically focused, shall we say. He was not a believer. And Jeremiah is told to write a book, a prophecy of judgment. By the way, prophets, this is a side note, but prophets were not merely there to tell the future, folks. Every time we hear about prophecy, for some reason, we're always thinking about, well, can people tell the future? Prophets, their primary goal, their primary task was to be the conscience, to speak truth to power. That's what they were there to do. That's what Jeremiah was doing. But listen to this, Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah sends the book through a messenger and the king, it says it was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him and Jehudai read three or four columns and the king would cut them off with a knife and he would throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. They didn't realize the words of Jeremiah were actually the words of God. We're going to look at that a little bit later on, but that's a big principle we have to understand about the Bible. The words of the prophet were the words of God. One equals the other. King Jehoiakim didn't notice that. Not only would he not listen to them, but in verse 26, the king commanded Jerhamiel and, and the, king, or the king's son and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Barak, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll. And write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And by the way, the very fact that we're reading this tells you that Jeremiah's prophecy couldn't be destroyed in the king's fire. Very important to understand. They're still trying to burn the book. They haven't been able. Well, let's move on. Here's the central figure of all of history, the Son of God, Jesus you know, King Herod at one time thought his problems were solved, were all gone with the head of, head of John the Baptist. But imagine his terror when he found out, when he heard about the ministry of Jesus and thought that it was John the Baptist come back as a ghost to haunt him. Can you imagine? I thought I canceled that guy. Why is someone still speaking this way? Do you know what finally caused the leaders of the, the society at that time, the cultural leaders, the cultural influencers, shall we say, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so on, to finally decide that Jesus ultimately needed to be canceled. Do you know what it was? Do you remember? It's John chapter 11, and it's, uh, it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> it's a little bit ironic, don't you think? They tried to cancel an individual who just raised someone from the dead. 
That is the problem they're up against today. They're still up against the same individual. How well did it go? By the way, not only did they need to cancel Jesus, but Lazarus had to be canceled too. John 12, we read, when a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So guess what? Why do they need to cancel you? If you're a believer in this room tonight, they need to cancel you because God has raised you from the dead. And you are living proof of the power of God. You need to be canceled. Don't take it personally. Take it with joy. They're going to try and put us down. Okay. But we've been raised from the dead by a God who does that all the time. We have resurrection hope. We heard about that on Sunday. How well did it work? Matthew 27. It's somewhat humorous. When the leaders come to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember now that this imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, we want you to order the, the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and keep the fraud going, right? Tell the people that he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. It's kind of funny to watch those soldiers become as dead men when the angel showed up at the tomb. By the way, when the angel showed up at the tomb, Jesus was already gone. The stone was rolled away just to show everyone he's gone. There's his clothes lying there just as if he'd been lying in them, but he's gone. He's not there anymore. He's risen from the dead. This is our central point of confidence, folks, in the face of cancel culture. This is what makes the gospel actual good news, and they'll never defeat it. So why will you bow? Why will you live in fear at speaking truth into a culture that doesn't know what truth is? They're lost. They're confused. Just look around. It's at the point now of completely being ridiculous and absurd. Like it's very hard to have to argue with someone. No, the grass really is green. It really is. Well, that's just your interpretation. You do you. That's your truth. No, I'm pretty sure it's green. Last I checked. Well, what is green really? Right? This is the culture we're living in. Like, how do you argue with this? We have good news of resurrection hope. And it's going to be as Christians when we suffer. And they watch us suffer and they say, there's something strange about these people. I don't know what it is. Our central confidence is Christ. Next, we have Paul. We've been going through Philippians on Sundays. And Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Great. Well, then we're going to kill you. Well, to die is gain. I only win if you kill me. I'm in the presence of Jesus if you do that. I'm not afraid of that. I want to live and have fruitful labor here. So what, I'm, what I want to choose, I'm not really sure. By the way, eventually he was beheaded under the Roman emperor Nero, but his voice lives on through scriptures and we're still hearing his sermons 
weekly, right now. And of course, the other apostles, all of them except John were canceled by execution. None of them recanted as witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. They couldn't cancel their witness. Isn't that wild? That should make us excited. It should make us want to throw a party. John, they tried to cancel through execution by boiling him. It didn't work out. So they canceled him on the Isle of Patmos. Well, that didn't work out so well either because we got an entire book of the Bible out of it. Book of Revelation. Interesting, isn't it? Then we get into post-biblical history. Well, the pre-Christian era, uh, I think the one that is remarkable to us is uh, back in uh, the Roman emperor, AD uh, 284, Diocletian came to, the, uh, to, to rule in Rome and he started what was known as the Great Persecution from AD 303 to 313, 10 years the official persecution in Rome of all Christians. Uh, It was the worst of all Roman persecutions at all. It made Nero look nice. We always think of Nero as the crazy guy. Diocletian was, was crazier. He ordered the destruction of Christian scripture, burned the books, burned the Bibles, liturgical books, places of worship, Destroy the churches. He prohibited Christians from assembling for worship. Sound familiar? Christians were not allowed to appeal to the courts, nor could they respond to accusations made of them in court. Christian senators and soldiers were removed from their ranks and their positions, and freedmen were re-enslaved. But the church continued to grow. And at the end of his reign, I think in 313, Constantine came to power and he ended the persecution and legalized Christianity for the first time. The church exploded. And that was when Western civilization became somewhat, somewhat Christianized. Christians suffering, Christians being canceled, God used to resurrect God used to restore. God used to grow his church. All right, next we have Tyndale, William Tyndale. We're moving on to, he was executed October 6, 1536 for nothing more than translating the scriptures from the original languages of Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek into the common language that was spoken in England at that time. He wanted everyone He wanted the common people. He wanted the boy that driveth the plow. Those were his words. To read and understand what at the time only the religious elite could read and understand. And of course, they hated him for it because there were a lot of things in their doctrines that they were trying to cover up that he illuminated the minds of people toward. His last prayer before his execution, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Well, his Bible, his translation certainly did that. It was already in wide circulation in England by the time of his execution, and no one was going to stop it. And the nation very quickly shifted to Protestantism, and the gospel was being heard and proclaimed. And many newer versions of the Bible today still contain influence from Tyndale's original 
translation's original work. Couldn't be canceled. Next, let's look at the Oxford martyrs. Who are these guys? Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer. Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester. Ridley was the Bishop of London. Both of them, and this had to do with their, it just had to do with their view of transubstantiation at the time, but both of them were burned at the stake October 16, 1555. Now, this is interesting. I, or just to me, I can't, I can't get my head around what it would mean to be publicly burned alive at the stake. I mean, they, and, and before they were, they had to sit and listen to a sermon. There would be a clergyman would come out and preach a sermon, and they would obviously disagree with the sermon because what they, was being preached was what they were being killed for, and then they were prepared to be burned, and they were tied to the stake, and they were burned. And just before they were burned, just before the flames were lit, Latimer turns to Ridley and he says this. This is, again, we need this attitude today. He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. You think it's true for our culture? We may this day even in the process of being canceled, light a candle in Canada, in North America, in Western civilization, that by God's grace will never be put out. Thomas Cranmer followed them a year later. He kind of waffled back and forth. He actually wrote out certain things that he agreed with the queen at the time and then he went back on it and he was eventually executed anyways and he held his hand in the fire that he had signed those papers with, the offending hand uh, to show his repentance and to show his remorse for what he had done. Voltaire, here's the next one, Voltaire. French philosopher, 1694 to 1778. He promised, he reportedly predicted that within a hundred years, the Bible would be nothing but a relic in museums. No one would even want to see it anymore. Ironically, and by the way, during his time, another, another interesting guy you may want to look up was a guy named Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal is actually the, he was the inventor of the modern day computer. He started it all. He started the good old calculator way back in the 18th century. Isn't that crazy? Blaise Pascal was a Christian. He looked at the world with a Christian worldview and he saw that everything had order and design and so on. And that's how he was led to many of his conclusions. Voltaire hated Pascal and he was always trying to destroy him and trying to destroy Christianity and so on. Ironically, and by the way, he was kicked out of Paris. Voltaire was actually kicked out of Paris because his viewpoints were so divisive. So he moved to Geneva, Switzerland for a while. That didn't work out very well because the reformers were there and they eventually kicked him out of there. And he went back to France to a place called Ferny, France. Now this is all very interesting because 58 years after his death, the same man that predicted that within 100 years, the Bible would be nothing but a relic because he was gonna do such a bang up job of canceling it and getting rid of it with his philosophies. 58 years after his death, his former house in Geneva, Switzerland, was being used as a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts. 
Someone has said that the Bible has outlived its pallbearers. Now that, that, that historical fact has been back and forth, but there's been a lot of study put into witnesses who actually saw the house and saw the place where these Bibles and gospel tracts were being held. Then in Fernie, France, where he spent the last 18 years of his life printing out his books and his philosophies, printing them out on the printing press. We may actually look at the printing press next week, the Gutenberg printing press in the idea of technology, but the very printing presses that were used for his purposes of destroying the Bible in Fernie, France for the last 18 years of his life a Bible society was eventually set up in Fernie, France, and the printing presses were now used to print scripture. It's just too funny to leave, to leave out. I had to put it in here. Because you see, what we are going through right now, folks, should make us smile to think that our culture thinks that they can go up against the God of eternity, the God of resurrection, and actually have a chance, have a fighting chance. It's not going to work. We're not supposed to be people who are marked by trembling and in fear. We're supposed to be marked by a calm confidence in all of this. It's not going to work. I mean, and you look at the years that it took. I mean, 58 years after Voltaire's death or, you know, for the last 18 years of his life, he's writing, writing, writing in Fernie, France. For all that time, it looked like Voltaire was winning. Voltaire was winning. But now we have a wider lens. We can look at history back then from a wider lens and we can see, oh, God was working all the time. Isn't that amazing? The problem is we don't have that wide lens on ourselves right now. We have a very narrow lens because we see our situation in history as day to day to day to day to day. It's very easy to look back at Bible characters and go, oh yeah, I can see why he trusted God. Yeah, of course it was going to work out for him. You know, Joseph spending 13 years in prison, so of course it's going to work out for him. He had the dreams and everything. That's easy. You think it was easy for Joseph day to day to day to day? Like nobody's, nobody's noticing God, where are you? Right? That's where we're at. We have history to look at it from a wide lens. Here's the next one. Oh, the great revival. George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, um, Jonathan Edwards, and so on. We're moving on a little bit, but I want you to know that there's something that happened before these guys came on the scene about 100 years before. Back in 1662, there was a legislation that came out of England that was called the Act of Uniformity, and it came out of the Church of England and the government. Of course, it was all kind of the same thing, okay? So it wasn't just religious, it was political as well. And basically, this act of uniformity, what it was doing was actually uh, making illegal the preaching and the liturgical books and so on that the Puritans had been using for a long time. A lot of England at that point had been defined by Puritan thinking, and there were a lot of Puritan uh, preachers that were in the pulpit at that time. The Church of England was uh, distraught about this and they needed to cancel it, get rid of it, get it out. So Parliament passed a legislation, the Act of Uniformity, and as a result, 2,000 ministers were ejected from their pulpits. I know a lot of people are afraid of losing their jobs today. Folks, we're not the first people in history to fear having lost our income. These, these individuals lived in poverty Many of them suffered. Many of them were imprisoned for the rest of their lives. Do you know what came out of that? As one biographer of George Whitfield brings out, what came out of that was fervent 
prayer for years and years and years. And by the way, side note again, every spiritual uh, revival has always been marked initially by a spirit of fervent, urgent prayer. So we don't want to leave here tonight smiling and going home and thinking I have nothing to worry about, nothing to be, uh, to be cautious about. We're not saying that. We need to be confident, but we also need to be urgent in prayer. These guys, they were in prison. They couldn't help it. It was everywhere around them. And, and these ministers and the Christians, these Puritans were praying, praying, praying. John Bunyan was around during this time period as well, spent most of his life in prison because it was illegal to preach outdoors in the open air. It was illegal because they believed it could be politically, politically damaging. Do you notice how all these things, like today, people want to say, well, certain things that we're talking about and discussing uh, are all purely secular. They're, they're not religious at all. For instance, you know, stay home, stay safe has nothing to do with the church not gathering. Well, I don't, I don't know what their motives are. I quite frankly don't care. All I know is God tells us to gather as the church. We can't stop obeying God. We can't stop it. We have to do what God says. It's God's word, right? And back then it was no different. People were told, don't be speaking outdoors. It'll be politically damaging and so on. So it was illegal. Bunyan went to prison for it. And he also had to stay in prison because he would not sign any kind of agreement to say that when he got out again, that he would stop preaching. He said, I'm not signing that. I'm not agreeing to that. If I get out again, I will continue to preach. So he stayed in prison. And we got, by the way, another cancel culture story, isn't it? Because out of that, we got Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, what's the matter with you? I'm just kidding. You need to read it. It is not just a classic. It is a tremendous allegory of of Christian experience and what it should be normally. Next one is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. February 1st, 1933, two days after Hitler came to power, Bonhoeffer gave a radio address on the, idol the idolatry of calling a national leader, dear leader, right? Der Führer, Führer, sorry. The radio signal wasn't done, he, or he wasn't done his sermon, and the radio signal was cut off before the end. Bonhoeffer spoke against the Nazi theology that was coming into the church, into the German church at the time. It was infiltrating the German church. There were Nazis sitting in the audiences determining what could be said, what was legal, and what was illegal. So again, we have that mixture of you know, the politics and what's going on in government and what's going on in the church. They were mixed together. Very few clergymen at the time would listen to what Bonhoeffer was saying until they were all thrown in prison eventually. And it was incremental. It didn't happen all at once. Hitler didn't show up and say, hey guys, I'm an evil tyrant. I'm here to kill everyone and take over the country. He didn't say that. It was incremental. One step at a time, one step at a time. And people were still sleeping as the heat in the frying pan is just being turned up little by little by little. And people were still sleeping. And Bonhoeffer all the time was like waving his arms saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is evil. No one would listen. 12 years later, Hitler would have Bonhoeffer executed just a few days before the war would end. Bonhoeffer's legacy and writing still impact the church today. Bonhoeffer said, he wrote in one of his books, The Call to Discipleship. 
that when Christ bids a man, when he calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self-interest, die to everything. Bonhoeffer was canceled, but he really wasn't. And by the way, there's so much instruction from Bonhoeffer that we can take for ourselves today that is so parallel to what we are going through right now. Well, the last one, the jungles of Ecuador. Now we're into 1956, five missionaries on a Sunday, January the 8th, were speared to death by uh, the Elka people they had gone into the jungles to share the gospel with. Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, who once wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's key to living in cancel culture. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. I can't keep my job. Ultimately, I got to let it go. There's a lot of things in this world I can't keep. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was canceled by some spears. But two years later, Jim's widow, Elizabeth, daughter, Valerie, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, were able to move into the same Alka village and live with the people that had killed their husband and their brother, Many of them became Christians, even the men who killed the five missionaries two years before. What's the point of these stories? God uses canceled voices to speak into culture. So Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul knew what it was to live in a cancel culture with resurrection power. 